0: Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In our second installment of the 25th Annual Update in Emergency Medicine Conference from Whistler, BC from February 2012,
1: we're going to start off with Dr. David Carr talking about infectious diseases. We're going to talk a bit about antibiotic choices We're going to talk about how to minimize inpatient burden, because that's something clearly we're all faced with with today's pressures in the eMERGE. We're going to talk about making wise choices in the face of resistance. We're going to review some up-to-date kind of evidence-based recommendations for common infections. We're going to beat cellulitis to death in terms of the many twists and turns, all the kind of possibilities we see in the eMERGE. And we're going to talk about viruses. We're going to talk about why not to treat and when you need to prevent them. Drugs. I don't want to talk a lot about drugs, but there's kind of a bit of a fuss about antibiotics. One-third of our visits are infectious disease-related, and we as emergency doctors are the number one and number two prescribers of both penicillins and cephalosporins. If you take adverse effects from these drugs in the United States alone, about 140,000 adverse events per year are secondary to drug side effects. And antibiotics, the nice thing about this topic is it doesn't change, the the drugs don't change, the resistance does. So we just need to stay up to date on those resistance. One of the key things we talk about when we're thinking about inpatient versus outpatient care is bioavailability. And this is the percentage of the drug that is absorbed. And it's a really key determinant in selecting outpatient oral antibiotic, which part of my goal to this talk is to convince you to manage some people as outpatients. When we have highly bioavailable drugs, this allows for outpatient treatments. When we think about bioavailabilities, we divide them into three groups. Low, and this would be a drug like macrobid or nitrofrantoin, which is not to be used for serious serious infection, where a lot of the drug just stays in the urine and is not absorbed into the tissues. And that's why we always say macrobid's wonderful for a UTI, but not great for pilo. When we think about good bioavailability, we talk about the concentration in blood and tissue is less than if a given IV, but the therapeutic uh, concentration are still in excess of the effective amount. When we talk about high, these are the money shots. These are where greater than 90% are absorbed orally, and these are ideal to treat serious infections. This is a list you should know. Fluoroquinolones, SEPTRA, Linazolid, doxy, flagell, and clinda. And what you can say from this is, for the most part, these can be given oral or IV. It makes no difference. So with oral and IV, I think there's old habits die hard. A lot of us still are under the notion where IV works better. But an oral antibiotic with good or high bioavailability can achieve concentrations in in the gut or in the blood within an hour of those who have a functioning mouth or gut. So for most people who aren't vomiting, who aren't really sick, where we don't need that drug concentration so early, a highly bioavailable drug is good as oral as IV. When we talk about, well, maybe we should just give it IM, IM prolongs the concentration of the drug, but doesn't uh, come to the same serum concentrations. And I think what we can take from bioavailability, if you're not a believer in it, is we're really pushing the envelope of what we can treat as outpatients. We're even seeing at the hospital I work for talk of febrile neutropenics being treated as outpatients with drugs like fluoroquinolones and clindamycin, because these are highly bioavailable drugs, and these are the sickest people. When we look at the CAP guidelines for pneumonia, we see that most of them are getting respiratory fluoroquinolones because... You know, the reality is whether you get it oral or IV, it probably doesn't make much of a difference. When we think about PO drugs, they're wonderful and it lowers the cost and it decreases ED length of stay, which is such a key parameter for how we practice emergency medicine.
0: So this is great stuff. I think we have been choosing IV antibiotics rather than PO antibiotics too much. And in a lot of situations when the drug has high bioavailability, we can get away with PO drugs. So this is the list, again, of the high bioavailability PO drugs. Those are fluoroquinolones, Ceptra, Clinda, Doxy, Linazolid, and Flagyl. So next time you're about to order home care for IV antibiotics, just take a look at this list and remember that PO will be just as good and you could save a lot of
1: time, resource, and patient hassle. So what about the bugs? So talk talked a little about some principles of drugs, some stuff about bugs. Well, it's important to know about what the heck is going on in resistance. And if you look, here's from the Canadian Bacteria Surveillance Network just over a year ago. We can look at trends. We can look about amoxicillin sensitivity to strep pneumo and how that's rising. We can look at probably the scariest resistance slide of this whole talk is this macrolide resistance. You know, it's wonderful to take a drug and just write z pack and you're done. I mean, that's... What are we looking at? Six letters and the pharmacist knows how to deal with it and you don't have to do anything. And that kind of once daily, convenient, easy for doctors to write is why azithromycin resistance is super high. The current guidelines for pneumonia says if you're over 65 or you have risk factors for drug resistant strep pneumo and you work in a place where your resistance is greater than 25%, you shouldn't be using macrolides alone. And we're at this level. Fluoroquinolones another drug we're all kind of familiar with, we can see our trends are kind of, haven't been going on the same slope as our macrolides have. One of the reasons we are doing a bad job of letting resistance go out of control is we keep treating viruses. One of the most alarming things is when you think about pharyngitis, if you look at the McIsaac criteria, You look at that scoring system, you're still flipping a coin that 50% of those patients are still viral, even someone with all the classic symptoms.
0: Just to remind our listeners of what the McIsaac score is, that was a score that was developed in 1998 to determine the chance of the patient having strep throat. You get one point each for a temperature greater than 38 degrees, no cough, tender anterior cervical adenopathy, tonsillar swelling or exudate, and age 3 to 14 years. And you get a point taken off if you have an age more than 45 years. If the score was 4, then they suggested culturing all patients and treat with penicillin on clinical grounds. If you got a score of 2 or 3, they suggested culturing all patients and treat only if the culture results are positive. And if the score is 0 or 1, then no culture and no antibiotic is required. It turns out that this score isn't quite as good as we thought in terms of accurately predicting strep throat. However, it has been shown to decrease the rate of antibiotic prescriptions. So let's look at some numbers when it comes to giving antibiotics for patients with sore throat. The number needed to treat with antibiotics to get one patient who gets symptomatic relief one day faster is 8 This needs to be weighed against the increased incidence of side effects like vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and rashes, where the number needed to harm is about 10. Remember that throat infections can sometimes be associated with other local infections, so the number needed to treat for acute otitis media is about 30 in children and about 145 in adults, and the number needed to prevent acute sinusitis is about 50. Well, what about rheumatic fever? You know, we used to think that if you don't treat strep throat with antibiotics, then the kid could end up with rheumatic fever. Although in Toronto there have been a few cases that have been reported recently, this is still a rare diagnosis, and the number needed to treat with antibiotics for strep throat to prevent one patient having rheumatic fever is about 1 in 15,000. And what about glomerulonephritis? Well, you can forget about GN. There's no detectable effect on reducing rates of acute Gn by treating pharyngitis
1: with antibiotics. Otitis media, still a a majority of these are viral and a majority of these resolve on their own. When you think about sinusitis, I mean, this is a viral problem. How many times do we see people who come in who want antibiotics for this and we have these fights? This is the problem. Bronchitis, I mean, the term bronchitis to me is like whiplash. These are terms I just don't like. Bronchitis, unless you're a copd is a way to give someone an antibiotic who doesn't need it. I think at the end of the day is, if you have bronchitis, it's still a great amount of time viral. You need, these people need to exercise some patience and probably, if it's contributory, stop smoking as well. And I think one of the hard things is it seems like wait times are correlated to patient entitlement to antibiotics. I think one of the hardest things is someone who says, I've waited six hours and I'm not getting an antibiotic. And yeah, I know it's terrible to wait, but that can't change our practice. The issue is, are we doing harm? So when we talk about harm, there's this new kind of principle in the infectious disease uh, literature about collateral damage. And this is the adverse ecological effects of antibiotics. And one of the things they do is they select for multidrug-resistant uh, multi-drug organisms. And you know, one of the things we see is that if you had a previous fluoroquinolone and you come in, in our hospital with febrile neutropenia, we add vancomycin to your mix, because that's why we know that if you've had a fluoroquinolone in the last three months, you're predisposed to an MRSA infection. So we're gonna cover you if you have no immune system. We also know all about, all too well, about C. diff and the perils of that. So I think it's important to take an antibiotic history and avoid the broad spectrums and think about we do harm by giving people antibiotics. One thing before we move to the cases where I think we talk that has so highly adapted the, the, uh, this principle of collateral damages. if we looked at the 2010 guidelines for UTIs and PILOs, We see that they've suggested five days of nitrofrantoin. This has zero collateral damage. It's a wonderful drug. And we see that Cipro is second line. This is a drug that really should not be used for uncomplicated cystitis. It really isn't a first line agent because of the collateral damage. One of the other things that they've taken from these guidelines is they take for Pylo three drugs that are extremely highly bioavailable. And what they're saying by that is, you can send people home with PILO because you're offering them highly bioavailable drugs. Look, case number one, the handover. So this is a 32-year-old female with right upper quadrant pain, temperature 38, normal vitals, a little bit of a white count, LFTs were a little bit up. Colleague says to me, she's awaiting ultrasound. If she's, if she's tender and the ultrasound's positive, send her to Genshirtz with their gall bag. If not, send her home. Reasonable handover? Sure, common. We get this often, right? Didn't look too bad. So the radiologist says there's no evidence of gallstones, but she seemed to be tender down below. So I put my probe on, and I found that she is, has thickened, fluid-filled fallopian tubes with minimal free fluid. Well, that was not what I was expecting. So I go back and examine this woman, and she's got cervical motion tenderness. She has an tenderness. Her swab turns out to be chlamydia. What do you think this woman has? Fitzhugh Curtis, right? So this is a woman who has PID with Fitzhugh Curtis. And the scary thing about Fitzhugh Curtis is they say up to 25% of PID have this, especially in the adolescent population. I think about all the young women with colic who I say, your ultrasound's fine, go home. And I never even examine below because if you're tender here, I kind of stop. So think about it. A first, pat, a first catch urine after two hours of not peeing it's great to check for uh, sexually transmitted infections in men, but unfortunately not good enough in women. And it's probably if you have marital or court issues, you probably want to go through a different method because there can be some false positives doing it in the urine with a nucleic acid amplification test. PID, this is a crappy disease. affects 11% of women. Two-thirds go unrecognized, and in a famous Scandinavian cohort, they looked at women who had one episode of PID. They found that after that first episode, 20% were infertile, 25% had recurrence, 1 in 10 had an ectopic after their first pregnancy, and 25% had, a, had chronic pelvic pain. This is something we need to do better at. How do we do better at? We over-treat. The CDC has set standard kind of definitions, which are quite simple. You have abdo pain, you have sex, and you have no other cause. And all you need on top of that is either adnexal tenderness, cervical motion tenderness, or uterine tenderness. This other criteria about ESRs and fevers and cultures aren't really necessary. Essentially, if you have lower abdominal pain and you don't have appendicitis and you don't have a cyst one should strongly think that this young, sexually active female has PID and have a low threshold to treat. When you do treat these people, this is a study that looked at over 800 women with PID with seven years follow-up who got cefoxitin and doxy, I like to think about as foxy and doxy, versus an oral combination. They had no difference in pregnancy, infertility, pelvic pain, ectopics, no difference in patients with fever or increased white pound. It made no difference which group you belong to. This is an outpatient disease. And it's an outpatient disease that is changing. If you read New England Journal this past week, you'll see that there was an article on the resistance in gonorrhea. If you see the Canadian Public Health has sent out new stuff in this past um, new year in January about changing the way we treat this. And that's why I think it's an important topic to cover. Penicillin cured gonorrhea until the 80s, but things have certainly changed. When we look at chlamydia, not much has changed in the sense of it's still a single dose of azithromycin or doxy 100 BID. Okay, not much has changed. When we move to gonorrhea, this is where the change is. According to public health, they've increased the dose of a suffixing and increase what previously was 125 to 250 milligrams of ceftriaxone. They've further gone on to say that if you have gonorrhea, you should treat for chlamydia as well. And when doing so, make sure you do it with azithro because azithro also treats gonorrhea. And hey, we're having a ton of resistance to gonorrhea now. You gotta hit these people up as hard as you can. So think about azithro. And ceftriaxone for these people. And the, the kind of rumor around public health is that suffixing will soon be out and it will be ceftriaxone is all we have left. When we think about PID, same sort of thing, higher doses. What's the problem with this 250, 500 milligram dose? I am. It kills, right? So every nurse has their own strategy, half into one butt cheek, half into the other butt cheek. One of the recommendations, one of the pearls I'll say is. Ceftriaxone comes in a powder. Instead of diluting it with sterile water, typically they take 0.9 mils of water with the amp of ceftriaxone of 250, add 0.9 of 1% xylo without. So 0.9 mils of 1% xylo with the ceftriaxone per every 250 milligram vial, and that's supposed to decrease the pain upon injection, and that's something I've started to do. Quinolone resistance is clearly, clearly out. We're at higher doses of ceftriaxone and cef- cefixime. Even though I talk about azithromycin, you can't really use single doses for PID of azithromycin. When we talk about inpatient care with PID, Foxy-Doxy is an option, but most of these patients go home. And it's also important to treat these partners. In the past 60 days, regardless of symptoms, regardless of test results, we need to be hypervigilant because we're starting to get into a problem where in the next five years we're gonna have major issues with gonorrhea.
0: So I just want to review here the most recent CDC guidelines on PID. So for patients with mild to moderate severity, there's good evidence that these patients can be treated with non-IV antibiotics. So there's two different regimens that they suggest combining IM and PO antibiotics. Both of them recommend PO doxycycline 100 milligrams PO BID for 14 days with or without flagell 500 milligrams PO BID for 14 days. And in terms of the IM medication, you can use either ceftriaxone 250 milligrams or cefoxetin 2 grams with probenicid 1 gram orally. And don't forget what Dr. Carr said about mixing the IM medication with xylocaine. Now, if you want to avoid IM altogether, you can use cefixime 800 milligrams PO in a single dose with your doxycycline plus minus flagyl. We'll have this all outlined in
1: the written summary to help you remember this. Case number two, we're gonna talk about some cellulitis. 32-year-old healthy male presents with left leg resonance for three days. He was seen in a walk-in clinic two days ago and put on Keflex. Returns because his redness has increased up his leg. He has cellulitis without abscess. Pretty common stuff. We see this in the eMERGE in walk-in clinics in family medicine all the time. Treatment options. Who here says keep going with Keflex? Switch to a different oral antibiotic. The old Probenacet, Ansef. The other thing is, do we need a big gun antibiotic? Okay, so I think a lot of people use the Ancef, Probenecid route, and some people go big gun. I think what I want to highlight is the most under, when you have someone with cellulitis of their leg, what is the most underrated non-pharmacological treatment? elevation of the leg. Without a doubt, these people need to be told they've worked all day, you need to get home, lift your legs up. I can't tell you whether you should switch to oral or IV per se. It's a trial and error thing in the health, in the healthy person who's not rapidly growing and you're covering the right bug. But I think you need to talk to patients about what having cellulitis means. When you look at whether they should be put on, here's a study that looked at IV, Ansef, and probenecid versus Ceftriaxone, and people with severe, moderate to severe cellulitis. They had 120 patients in, in, gr- in each group, and it made no difference in either group. So this is a 22-year-old hockey player who noticed redness around his left wrist a few hours after finishing this hockey game. We concerned? Yeah, because hockey gloves are disgusting. <laughs> of course we're concerned. Have you smelled those things lately? Disgusting. He's given a script. For Keflex, 500 QID, and told to return the next day for follow-up. It's wonderful if you work in a place where you can bring those concerned infections back, and he returns with a weeping cellulitis and diagnosed with MRSA. MRSA is making news everywhere. When you get medical coverage in Sports Illustrated, it's a serious problem. (laughs) And this is a big problem, and what we're left is, what do we do with these people? Do we D them if they have abscess? Do we give them antibiotics? Do we cover strep? Do we cover staph? Do we cover both? And what should we do? And there's new guidelines that address this this past year. So MRSA is something we've all probably heard about. This is this spider bite that, you know, that people will describe. And you've seen it in faruncles and carbuncles. And uh, you know what the reality is? It's pretty much everyone. Healthcare worker MRSA is a big problem. You see a sick colleague with pneumonia, you have to think about MRSA. Healthcare workers are really going to hit are hit with this burden. This is not the run of the mill, just red, non-weepy, non-abscess forming pus pocket. David Tallon and Greg Moran did this study. They looked at 2004 and 2008 and they looked at prevalence. 59% is the overall MRSA rate in the States. And kind of 44% kind of closest to us in New York. When you look at the Canadian data, this was the study that was done uh, in 2007. They had 18% MRSA. When they excluded it to now get out of Toronto, move to Canada, 1,400 patients, 32% MRSA. We are moving higher and higher. There's no doubt about that. When you talk about, when in Talon's study, they looked at these prevalence rates that we said as high as 84% in Atlanta. The susceptibilities, fortunately, seem to be excellent. So we have lots of good outpatient options for these patients. What do we do when they have abscesses? And do we need antibiotics? Antibiotics after INDs, um, there's been multiple reviews. This one was done, uh, was a meta-analysis of five studies. They had high MRSA rates that basically showed no difference in IND groups versus IND plus antibiotics. When they look at the group, this was in annals. There were two papers this, uh, a year ago, looked at 150 patients, 220 patients. They had similar cure rates and in one of the studies, almost identical recurrence rates. So if you have an abscess, you still need to cut it out. Why do abscesses not get better? you got to savor the odor. you got to spend your time. you got to love that, breathe that smell like the nose of a good wine, and you got to make sure you do a good job. you got to get out those loculations, because if you do a little nick, because it stinks, and you want to get out of there, you're not going to get that abscess pocket out. It is not the antibiotic. It's doing a good job with our INDs. Breaking it up, getting in deep. When we think about the 2011 IDSA guidelines, what they talked about is ID alone is totally reasonable. Except if you have severely extensive disease, you got multiple sites, you got a rapidly progressive cellulitis, you're very unwell, you got lots of comorbidities, you have hard to drain area, you're not getting better to INDs, maybe you're after repeated INDs. So I'm not using a lot of an- antibiotics, maybe in my sick diabetics with a-, a secondary cellulitis with an abscess. For the most part, that hasn't changed. When we think about antibiotics, the old expert guidelines was, you know, if we're over 10 to 15%, we should think about treating MRSA. Well, we're all over that. There's different recommendations whether it's the BID or QID dosing of SEPTRA. none of it has been shown to be more favorable or the other. Doxy, usually we use a drug like with MRSA coverage like clinda or ceftra or doxy plus strep coverage. One of the things they talk about is Clinda and it has inducible resistance. This is about 2%. The way you kind of, one of the clues is when you get your cultures and you see it's sensitive to Clinda, resistant to erythromycin, sometimes that can be a little bit of a clue. And if they're sick, things like vanco or linazolid. So what does the IDSA guidelines say? They say for abscess alone, IND, when you have a purulent cellulitis, you should probably cover with community-acquired MRSA coverage, and strep coverage is probably not even necessary. When you have a non-purulent cellulitis without abscess, strep and staph and probably the role of MRSA is unknown. And when you have sick people, think about drugs like Vanco or Linazolid. This is an 18-year-old male who was up at the cottage. He was stung by a bee on his right thigh. He goes to a walk-in clinic eight hours later. He gets a script for Keflex. 24 hours after that, he goes back to the walk-in clinic, and he gets IV antibiotics, because the redness is getting worse. He's given ANSEF and probenecid for a couple days, and he comes back after the fourth day. Who wants to give him vancomycin? Anyone? Maybe this is MRSA. What do people want to do with this guy? Send him home with what, Catherine? Nice. An ice pack. Bug bites are not bad. Bug bites are not dirty. People often treat infected mosquito bites and bee stings. These are not dirty, disgusting creatures. You get infected bug bites from your dirty, disgusting fingers. So if you get the redness that happens six hours after the bite, that is inflammation. If three days later you get a cellulitis from your bite, that is an infection. What about bites in general? Well, this issue about bites in general is something we see a lot of, right? We see a lot of dog bites. The most recent Cochrane review of about 700 patients in eight studies looked at mammalian bites, and what they found was that antibiotic prophylaxis showed a statistically significant reduction in the infections of wounds of humans, but not cats or dogs. That was kind of different than what we're used to, and that they're very useful for hand bites. Well, that's kind of stuff we've probably thought about, with the number needed to treat of four to prevent one hand bite infections of people who had mammalian bites. What do we know about bites? What we can say about bites is, with dog bites, they carry infection resist, very similar to the risk of you cutting your finger, slicing a bagel on the breakfast table today. These are wounds that I often treat cosmetically. I will sew them up, I wash them out. The, the real group would be to be concerned of people who don't have spleens, serotics. you worry about something like capnocytophagia, people who might get sick, but for the most part, I don't treat dog bites unless these are sick patients or the bites are dirty bites on the hands. When it comes to cats, we're always taught about Pastorella, Pastorella. You should also realize that Pastorella is still the most common organism in both dogs and cats. So you see it in both even though it's always Pastorella cat, Pastorella cat. What we see about cat bites and with Pastorella is that if you get Pastorella, which is resistant to a lot of our beta-lactams, it's going to occur the infection within the first 24 hours. So someone who gets a cat bite cellulitis three days later, is not pastorilla. When we think about human bites, these are, you know, people say the bacteria count of our mouth is dirtier than our feces. So it's a pretty dirty, dirty environment. Now, we don't see a lot of ha- human bites. We see them in kind of kinky sexuality, we see it in terms of children. What the big one is, we see it is in these boxing fractures, closed fist injuries, and I think the alarming thing with studies is that almost 40% of closed fist injuries lie about the mechanism when they come in. So when you see that person who comes in with the broken fifth metacarpal and the cut over their hand, you pretty much have to spell it out. I don't care who you hit, I don't care if you hit a wall, I don't care what you did, if that hit someone's teeth, you need to see a plastic surgeon to wash out your joint. And you really got to document and really inquire about the proper mechanism of a fight bite. If you are going to prophylax, so you have someone who's immunocompromised, doesn't have a spleen, maybe has a hand bite, clavulin is usually the drug of choice for all mammalian bites, and it's typically given for five days. With infected bites, if you want to just keep it simple, you can use Piptazo for all three classes of bites to know about when you see infected bites. But remember, human bites over joint need more than just antibiotics. They probably need a washout. So a final case. This is a 27-year-old PGY2 who sustained an injury while injecting the wound of a homeless substance abuser. He washed it out thoroughly. He comes to emerge and he's feeling terrible. What else do you wanna know from this guy? So we wanna know a bit about who the person is his HIV status, his risk factors, how deep was the puncture. Who here would recommend HIV prophylaxis to this guy? Just on this, you got some substance abuser. Who here would take it themselves? So what we know about this is there's been one document and two possible occupational exposures in Canada. We know that feces, saliva, mucus, tears, and vomit and urine are all low risk unless tainted with red blood. We know the long-term effect with triple therapy have about 1 in 5,000 series of side effects in death and up to 1 in 50,000. I think you have to kind of build a Bayesian approach. And this is, a, there was a, some, addition, some articles in CJM, which to me are things I carry on my BlackBerry and I think are great, which kind of start with what are your chances of dying in the next 30, 365 days? And by all means, I'm not picking on skiers because I'm terrified to ski. When you think about dying in the next 12 months, from all causes, the risk is 1 in 3,000. If you're a woman who uses tampons, it's 1 in 100,000. If you get the flu, you have a 1 in 5,000 chance of dying. The risk of having a heart attack in the next year if you're over 35 is 1 in 77. These are scary stats, and I'm not trying to scare us. I'm trying to tell people who get disease to be reassured when, when I quote them risks. Because what you're doing is building an approach to discuss with patients what their likelihood, should they be taking the the prophylaxis, what's their real-life likelihood of other events. When Julie Spence did this article on CGM, she talked about some other risks that I tell patients about. I tell patients that if you have receptive anal intercourse with an HIV-positive person, your risk is 1% to 3% if they're asymptomatic. I tell them that... If you have, the, the, she quotes the typical bite risk as 0.3%, but HIV, although I don't brag and advertise, it's not easy to get. It's repeated exposures with risk factors that typically get it. So when we talk about this needle stick, we certainly are worried. This is a homeless substance abuser. We don't know his HIV status or her HIV status, but we know they probably have lots of risk factors We ask about the needle, it was a 25 gauge, and we try to build some model to say, what are his or her odds of contracting HIV?
0: Here, Dr. Carr is gonna talk about a chart from the CGEM articles that you can calculate the risk of HIV from a needle stick injury, which we'll have in the written summary.
1: So this is the Bayesian approach that looks at a a model that you can quote to give them an idea of what it is. And it starts by saying, look at the risk factor, known or unknown HIV carrier. So in this case, this is an unknown but probably high risk, so they get 100 points. Then we say the inoculum type. We say it's probably fresh blood because it just happened, they get one point for that. We talk about the method of transmission. This is a visible bleeding at the site. You know, you get that terrible sinking pit in your stomach when you know you just poked yourself and you bleed. You get 100 points for that. So you multiply those, and the denominator is this. So you get a 1 in 10,000. And you modify it by the amount of inoculum, which in a 25-gauge needle, you get 3 points. So the estimated risk, this isn't validated, is 3 in 10,000. And the author goes on to conclude that at 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 10,000, this is recommended but optional. So for me, that might be someone I discuss. I might tell them what the risks in everyday life are in similar events. And I say, I would recommend this. It's totally up to you. This is what I'd recommend. Most of the people, if you go through it, are in here, and you can tell them, look, your risk is one in a million. That's like your chance of being struck by lightning in the next 12 months. Nothing to worry about, okay? I think the key is you need to document and you need to counsel. And even for the most trivial things that you and I wouldn't even blink an eye over taking post-exposure prophylaxis, you need to tell the patient, look, if you want it, it's there. I wouldn't recommend it, and document that on your chart. So... What are some of my final thoughts of this infectious disease workshop? You've got to know your bioavailability of the drugs. You've got to know your target organisms. And we've really got to stop treating viruses with antibiotics. PID is an outpatient problem. We need to increase our dose of ceftriaxone and cefixine and keep an eye on gonorrhea because it's becoming a problem. We need to over-treat PID because it's a terrible disease. Skin and soft tissue infections are evolving. Rethink that impulse to just write Keflex, especially for your weepy cellulitis. You've got to treat abscesses properly, savor that odor, make sure you do a good job, and not everyone needs an antibiotics. Consider a new approach to HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. Empower your patients to aid in the decision process. Thank you very much for your time. Have a great rest of the conference. Next
0: in the Whistler highlights, we've got Dr. David McKinnon, who was on our huge episode on trauma, pearls, and pitfalls on emergency medicine cases. He's going to be talking about trauma. He's got some really interesting things to say about reversing Coumadin in the trauma patient, and he's also going to update us on penetrating anterior abdominal trauma.
2: And let's dive into the first case then. So we've got a 70-year-old female. She's a pedestrian struck by a car and uh, she complains of pain pretty much all over the torso, so chest, abdomen, pelvis. You can see her vital signs, so a little bit worrisome. When you do your quick head to toe, she's tender in the left upper quadrant, she's tender in the pelvis, she's got some chest tenderness, and then you find out that she's actually on Coumadin for AFib. So in this patient then, she's got a positive fast. Here's her chest x-ray, she's got multiple rib fractures on that side, probably some lung contusion. With that much injury, you'd worry there's probably some hemothorax, although you don't really see a massive hemothorax.
0: Dr. McKinnon here shows a pelvic x-ray that has a nasty, nasty fracture, and he goes on to talk about what we're going to do to reverse the Coumadin. Are we going to wait for the INR, or are we going to give something right away?
2: Octoplex or Berryplex. I'm just going to show you this article on Berryplex, which is slightly newer, but it essentially does the same thing. So this was from 2008. The problem with these studies, the early studies on both of these, Octoplex and Bariplex, is that they're pharmaceutical sponsored and we all know what that can do. So this one, uh, a very small sample, only 43 patients they had to have an INR greater than two, and these weren't actually necessarily massive, like, big trauma patients, but they were the patients requiring procedures or had acute bleeding, like a GI bleed or something else. And there's no doubt about this, both these products, Octoplex or Bariplex, it will reduce your INR very quickly. So it went down to 1.3 in about 93% of patients. I believe it was within one hour. It's very, very quick. So we know that it does that. So they had some serious, even in this small group of 43, they actually had what they considered six serious adverse events. Now, of course, they didn't really, when they presented the study, they don't really highlight these six serious adverse events. But they actually had three deaths. So PE, what they called cardiovascular causes, and then respiratory and renal failure. So anything we give to help patients clot, there's always going to be a risk that you cause a clot. You cause a stroke, you cause a PE, you cause whatever. There's always going to be the risk. We'll never come up with a a medication or treatment or drug that helps people clot that will not have the side effect of over-clotting some people. So it appears even in this small study that this probably does. So it's just one thing to be cognizant about. They also had an arterial embolism. When was the last time you just saw a spontaneous arterial embolism? So just keep that in mind. I mean, not from, uh, not from AFib or a cardiac source, but they had one arterial embolism and they had one DBT as well. So that's a pretty good amount of thrombotic events for 43 patients. So just a little kind of warning about this. There's no doubt, again, it reverses your INR. And so in some patients, we're going to want to use this. They actually haven't done the big studies to show, for example, in bleeding trauma patients, that it actually affects mortality. So all we know is that the studies have shown it brings your INR down very quickly. I think where we're going to run into problems is like in the, um, in the panel discussion uh, the other morning, where they presented the case of the elderly man that fell down on the sidewalk. Maybe he's a little bit confused. His GCS was 14 or 15, and he was on Coumadin. We probably don't want to be, and let's say even if you get his INR back and it's four, and you haven't had a CT scan yet, maybe you're in a center where you don't have a CT scanner. I really don't want to, I I hope we don't start just giving bariplex to those patients. The patients on Coumadin, they're on Coumadin for a reason, because they've had some thrombotic event or they're at risk. So if you think about it, they're at the highest risk. So maybe they've had strokes, so or they've got AFib, and they're at risk of stroke. So I just hope we don't start throwing bariplex at anybody on Coumadin that has any little injury or small thing. We probably need to see some bigger studies. But having said that, I think we'd probably all agree in this patient. She's bleeding. She's on Coumadin. She's in trouble. She's got multiple sites. She's hypotensive. This is probably a clear-cut case. You would, I would agree to give bariplex.
0: Dr. McKinnon goes on to present a couple more cases and talks about massive transfusion protocols, permissive hypotension, and pan scanning. And we cover this in detail in our episode number 10 on trauma, pearls, and pitfalls, which I'll refer you to. Dr. McKinnon's now gonna go on to talk about penetrating abdominal injuries.
2: So case three, so uh, got a 25-year-old male and he's been stabbed to the mid-abdomen. And of course, he was minding his own business because that's the most common cause of a penetrating injury had some alcohol and crack use, agitated, ABCs are good. We're gonna get our full set of vitals, there's a little tachycardic. Stab wounds, anterior stab wounds, we always log roll really quickly because if there's a stab in the cardiac box and he arrests, it's gonna change your management because now you want to do a thoracotomy. So it's just nice to know about it. So we do a quick log roll in these anterior stab wounds. So when you examine them really, no peritoneal signs, three centimeter stab to the left mid-abdomen. There's no evisceration, rectal's negative for blood, fast negative. So I'm giving you all the indications for immediate OR. So if there's evisceration, it needs to go to the operating room. If, there's, if he's peritoneal, he's probably perforated his bowel, he has to go to the operating room. So what do you do with this patient? That they're stable and there's no immediate indication for the OR. He's tachycardic, but you know what? He's been doing some crack and alcohol and they're all tachycardic. So we don't know what that means. We do a blood gas as part of our initial bloods and all the traumas. The base excess is supposed to be one of the best initial predictors, so just to keep that in mind, so, it's normal. So what do we want to do with this person? We want to call the surgeon? We want to CT him. Do you want to just keep him and kind of watch him for a little while? So the answer is it actually is probably any of those. and We're gonna kind of show you why. So this is a group out of Denver that looked at how to deal with the anterior abdominal stab wounds. The Western Trauma Association is what they were a part of, and they came up with a protocol, and they just actually published the results. This is in December issue of Journal of Trauma. And so they came up with the Western Trauma Association algorithm. And what I really like about it is as many patients as they could, they either went right to the OR if they had an indication, and if they didn't, they didn't CT them right away. They did local wound exploration, and if it didn't violate the peritoneum, they would just observe them and not CT scan them. And you have to be, kind of be able to do the local wound exploration properly. If it violated the peritoneum, even those, they would watch a lot of those. But basically, though, they had about 222 patients. So Some of them did need immediate laparotomy. But they actually managed about half their patients by this. And what I really like about it is they're not ct in them all, and they're not rushing them to the OR. So they're really kind of using the resources wisely. number of the patients then were admitted for serial clinic exams, and only 11, so they admitted 61, only 11 needed the OR. And they followed them up, and the ones that didn't, For the most part, they did fine. They didn't kind of go home and die of peritoneal sepsis. So I like the trend that we're going back to the good old style serial clinical exams. As long as you're in a setting where you can do that carefully and they can be watched carefully. So this is our algorithm for penetrating wounds to the abdomen, flank, and back. So we have the indications for the OR. So here's the anterior abdominal stab wounds. So you can observe local wound exploration. You can CT if there's some reason you're worried about or you can, they can do laparoscopy. So anyway, it's not really interesting. It's been validated now that you can actually watch a lot of these patients. We don't have to run and image them.
0: Next, we're going to shift gears again. And Dr. Skolnick going to give a talk on pediatric urologic emergencies. He's going to be talking about UTIs, torsion, epididymitis, and some diagnoses that are sometimes mismanaged, like paraphimosis and phimosis.
3: So starting already with UTIs in children, American Academy of Pediatrics, Canadian Pediatric Society guidelines pretty much say that every febrile infant should have a urine done. Well, there are caveats to that. It becomes even more important when the infant, and we're talking about a kid less than 24, some people even say 36 months, any infant toddler who has a fever should have a urine done, but especially if the fever continues more than a couple of days, which is what you'd expect from a a viral infection. In Montreal, they looked at all comers to a pediatric emerge, all infants with fever. It didn't matter what the fever was caused by, didn't matter if they had gastroenteritis, diarrhea, vomiting, earache, cough, runny nose, every infant who had a fever at triage had a bag urine put on. And anyone who had a positive bag, which means positive lukes or nitrites, went on to have a cath urine done or a clean catch. And then they stratified according to how long the fever had been going. Children who'd had fever for 24 hours or less, 5% had a UTI. This is in all comers. And by day three, if they'd had a fever for 48 to 72 hours, it was already one in eight kids had a UTI. Bottom line is, you have to think of UTIs in kids who've, children, infants who've had fever for more than a couple of days, even if you think you've got the diagnosis going. If you're not gonna do that, the minimum would be follow up and see them on day four or five, and if they still have a fever, you definitely need to be doing a urine then. Okay. Some caveats to that are that you can have a negative dip, especially at the beginning of life in a neonate you can have a pure growth of E. coli or Klebsiella or Pseudomonas or something like that from a neonate, even though the dip is completely normal. So you can't rely on the data that I've just given you in neonates. So in the first couple of months, two, three, four months, and different uh, studies show this graph coming back down in as, as little as two, three, four months, and some say seven, eight months. The bottom line is neonates, if they have a fever, as you all know, you do a sepsis workup, that should include a urine, And having a a normal urine on dip still means you should culture them. Another way of looking at at this is that in older infants, post-neonatal infants, if you have a negative bag, it probably means that you're OK. Your chance of that child having a urinary tract infection is less than 1% to 2%. So after the age of three or four months, if there are no lukes, there are no nitrites on a bag urine, even, probably you don't have to push it any harder. But in neonates, you do. Neonates in males is a preponderance have infection. Within a few months, it's female children have more UTIs. And that circumcision is debatably somewhat uh, protective in the first year of life against UTIs. At sick kids, to my knowledge, me and my colleagues, n- no one really does or doesn't do a urine culture or a catheter or or, or investigate an infant based on whether they circumcised or not. This is sort of. It's not tenuous, but it's not enough to change your practice. Febrile infants should have a urine done if the fever continues more than a couple of days. Also, just to remember that a urine infection in children can present completely non-specifically. Just a fever in an otherwise well child, lethargy, decreased intake, odd vomit. In a neonate more, it would be jaundice, irritability, maybe secondary anuria if a kid's been dry and they're already two years old, something like that and then abdominal pain, and of course, the typical dysuria, hematuria, CVA tenderness, but that is not the rule in infants. They're gonna have this non-specific thing. And every shift, you know, following this rule, you, you, I, I will investigate infants, and you find the odd kid that's got a UTI that there's no reason to think that they would have it except they've got the fever. A few words on the differential of a UTI. Uh, remember Foreign Body uh, had a lovely little infant girl who came in with a little lead soldier in her vagina. We had to sedate her. In fact, she had to go to the OR to have the little toy soldier taken out. And it wasn't me. It was one of my colleague said, well, here's a memento. This is what we found in your vagina. And the kid came back the next evening with a little toy soldier in her vagina. And we asked her what had happened. And she said, well, she sat on it. But anyway. Foreign bodies get into vaginas and cause all sorts of problems which can mimic UTI. The common one here might be uh, toilet paper. It can can get stuck. Remember pinworm, which can just give you the unexplained uh, itch and, I guess, redness in the perineum, and I've got a few words on some other stuff that comes later on that. Also, remember pediatricians, remember abuse. Okay, Anything down in that end can be can be abuse. It could be just redness. It could be unexplained discharge. It could be frequent UTIs. You've got to put that on your list always when you're thinking of children. If you get a positive bag, urine, based on what I've said, it pretty much obligates you to then get a clean urine for culture because we... We're obligating the kid, if we've got a proven UTI, to a series of investigations, which I'll talk about soon. And you don't want to go on to give the kid rads and and long-term investigations, unless you you know the diagnosis is correct. So a positive bag obligates you to get either a midstream urine or a cath or a suprapubic aspiration. Suprapubics are a lot easier to do than one would imagine in infants. It's literally the first skin fold above the pubis and you go in with a a one-and-a-half-inch needle at right angles to the skin. If you can do an ultrasound before, all the good. Otherwise, you can tap and see if there's urine in there. But in infants, the bladder is an abdominal organ. So you're going to get what you need to get. You're going to get your urine if you go in there. Also, just to end off here, uh, a shout-out, E. coli, you need to look at the resistance patterns in your own community. In Toronto at the moment, 70% of E. coli's, cultured from urines, are resistant to amoxil and 50% to septra. So you don't want to use these as first-line drugs. And a lot of people still do. And we often get the resistant cases or the urosepsis, the kids that um, didn't respond to oral treatment because they've been given, for our community, the wrong drug. So we use cephalexin as our first-line drug, and in some cases, we're even being pushed into nitrofurantoin as a first-line, which is not very easy to give or palatable to kids. Also, in children, when you treat, you're going to treat for 10 days. None of this short five-, seven-day thing, which I think is still used, or is used in the adult world. Yeah? Shortish. Kids, for some reason, it, it just doesn't clear. Right. Who to admit? An, a neat study was done quite recently, about two years ago, I think in uh, Ottawa, where they showed that you could safely, I'm, going to, I'm talking about the study to tell you not to listen to the study. What they did was they, they showed that you didn't need to admit febrile UTIs even at two or three months of age, but they had a UTI clinic follow-up available at the hospital every morning of the week. So with good follow-up, you can actually safely avoid admitting febrile UTIs in infants. But I think most of us would tend to admit a febrile UTI right through at least to six or eight months, so even if the kid looks good, because they can go sour on you. They can become septic on you. But I am quoting that study to say that if you've got good follow-up and you know the person who see them the next day and the parents are good and they understand to come back and they know what lethargy is and they know what vomiting and poor feeding, signs of illness, you could avoid... You don't have to admit febrile UTIs, even in infants, but you've got to be careful. I mentioned that once you've proven a UTI in, in infants, you are obligated to then do at least an ultrasound, and it's the kids we still do a VCUG, on all proven... UTIs, male or female, even if it's the first time. Some of the literature will say a female infant, you're allowed to give them a second chance. And if they've had a second proven UTI, single growth, well-taken urine, not a bag, then you have to investigate them. And what you're going to do are basically the ultrasound looking for hydronephrosis, uh, abnormal kidney sizes, and a VCUG looking for reflux. Doing those two tests, in infants who've had one proven UTI, one third will have an anatomical abnormality, which is why we do the test. It's a very, very high yield. Of those, most of them have just got a one to two out of five reflux, which means that the urine puffs up into the ureter, but it doesn't reach the calyces. So that's called grade one or two reflux. And most of those resolve spontaneously, about 20% per year. So you could say that in four years, all of your first and second degree refluxes have, will have resolved. What's been shown more and more recently is that the whole reason for us to freak out about febrile UTIs in terms of scarring of the kidneys, future renal failure, is probably not directly related one to the other. In other words, some children get frequent UTIs and don't scar, and some kids scar their kidneys up and end up with renal failure even though they haven't had UTIs. The Cochrane Reviews and other sources now are basically saying that the whole connection between UTIs and renal failure and the reason we're doing all these tests is a little bit tenuous, even through to the point that if you find a grade 1 or 2 reflux, you might not even end up prophylaxing the children. So it's a changing area of practice, but for now the standard would be investigate children with a fever. If you find a urine infection and you prove it in a well-taken urine, you've got to investigate them and follow through up until about 24 months and some would stretch it even to 36 months i'm just going to splice in a piece from the pediatric expert panel
0: as an introduction to the next section dr lotofsky is going to be asking the pediatric
4: expert panel about kids who present to the emergency department with vomiting stanis i'm going to give you a kid that you see every hour that's it it's right the vomiting and 14 month kid who's just vomiting three, four times an hour for the past couple of hours. He would actually start vomiting uh, early in the day and given some moxicillin for pharyngitis. He's got no fever. He's, not uri- uh, he's urinating normal. Uh, normally there's no diarrhea and there's no history of travel. As far as the dad can tell, he doesn't think the kid, this infant's got belly pain, but just intractable vomiting in a 14-month-old male What can we miss, Dennis? What are the things that you really don't want to miss in the emergency department with vomiting NYD without any diarrhea?
3: Okay, so vomiting, I generally teach the residents that there's, uh, with a full history and an exam, you're gonna pick up most cases of what's causing vomiting. And that goes from raised intracranial pressure right down to a septic toe. But there are two systems that are relatively silent systems. And they are the central nervous system and the GI. So the things that to, to be careful of in vomiting are, that you don't want to miss are things that are in those two main systems. So. Things towards raised intracranial pressure, tumours, bleeds into tumours, AVMs in the head, because you might not pick them up on a, on your exam, chicken baby. chicken baby. And then in the GI, things like uh, intersusception or intermittent volvulus.
5: I think the biggest thing is that they need to undress the child. Too many times, um, our trainees take shortcuts. Uh, they're like, you know, we always teach them, oh, examine the child in the parents' lap. Uh, that way the child won't be irritable. Most of the time, um, when I'm in with my residents, they don't completely undress the child. Uh, if you don't undress the child, you're gonna miss things. You're gonna miss bruising. You're not gonna see the, you're not gonna see the rashes that are underneath, underneath the diaper. Uh, you won't be able to see and feel and assess the testicles. I mean, you need to fully undress these kids, uh, particularly if they're sick and you're worried about them. You don't have like a solid diagnosis.
4: They took the diaper off, in fact, and that's what they found. You know, you see a kid with a fever and you need to get these kids undressed. You're not going to see a particular rash unless you get the kid completely Mm -hmm. undressed. You're not going to make a diagnosis of torsion unless you take the diaper off. One-year-olds can get torsion. Mm
5: -hmm. Right? Anna, you've seen
4: one-year-olds with torsion? We've
5: had
6: newborns. You've had newborns at Credit Valley with torsion. It can happen even before birth. Yeah.
0: Now I'm going to go back to Dr. Skolnick's talk about pediatric urologic emergencies, and he's going to be talking about both the painful scrotum and the painless
3: scrotum. So painful scrotum, I think the top two things most of us are going to be worried, or the top thing we're going to be worried about is a torsion of the testis. And your main differential is going to be an epididymitis. There are other things that can give you a painful scrotum. You can have a torsion of the appendix testis, which is distinguishable earlier on in the course, but later on it becomes almost synonymous with the above two. And, of course, you can have a hernia that reaches down into the scrotum. You can have direct trauma. Henachshanline purpura and Kawasaki's can sometimes give you a, an acute red testis and, of course, hemorrhage or hemorrhage into a tumor. So a hydrocele, classically painless, transilluminates, bright orange, just use an ophthalmoscope or an oroscope, Held up against the scrotum, doesn't matter what colour skin the baby is, it'll transilluminate bright, bright orange. That pretty much tells you it's water there, as opposed to blood or pus. But do remember that a hydrosal can be secondary to, for instance, a torsion that's already going sour, or an epididymal oedema that's been going a day or two. But usually your history will distinguish there. Do remember that sometimes you can get a painless transilluminating swelling of the actual cord. So what, you happen, what happens there is you can feel the cord. There's a swelling. There's more cord. And then there is the scrotum itself. And again, if it transilluminates, it can be a hydrocele of the cord, a part of the tunica albina, which didn't uh, fuse during embryological development. Remember that hydroceles come and go. And in a way, if the parent comes and says, "Ah, oh, but it was much worse before. And, and then you say, was Johnny coughing or vomiting or crying? Yes, that abdominal pressure forces the fluid out of the peritoneal cavity down through into the cord and you get your big hydroseal, when they get back into a Trendelenburg or they're lying or they suck and they stop crying, this hydroseal can, can go down. Most hydroseals resolve spontaneously by a year. If not, at that stage you'd refer them to a surgeon. A few words then on orchitis and epididymitis and pretty much different from adult world. First of all, remember that it, it starts over the epididymis, and the epididymis is posterolateral on each scrotum. Using one finger to give counterbalance to the other, the child can't tell you which side is sore, so you can't use the two-finger exam. At sick kids, in a prepubertal male who's got somewhat typical onset of epididymitis, this is what we would do. we check the urine to make sure it's not a UTI, it's pretty rare that there's an association, but it's an easy test. We'd check it out. We would not use antibiotics because these are mostly viral, unless the urine was positive. We'd use non-steroidals for pain, uh, advise firm underwear to support the testicle. If it's very painful, they can uh, try and rest in a bit of a Trendelenburg to remove any pressure on the testicle. And um, most people would not do any further investigations. they are definitely urologists who say if a child gets... epididymitis, they need to be investigated for congenital abnormalities of the urogenital tract. But that's not the routine. And I don't routinely do an ultrasound on every painful scrotum. Many of my colleagues do. I can't fault them. But I feel that sometimes I can really be quite sure that it's not a torsion. So here's some of the things that make it a torsion. Torsion is sudden onset, Often with exercise, an older child, it might be during sex even, or or push-ups, or some kind of physical activity. It's often such a severe blinding onset of pain that the child will vomit. It involves the whole testicle straight away. It doesn't migrate and develop from the posterolateral and then go on to involve. It might actually involve the testicle riding higher. And if you get the child to stand, you can see that the testicles are not sitting as they normally should sit. Which testicle is lower than the other in Michelangelo's David? The right is lower. The left is higher. And just a little bit, but you can distinguish it. So if you have a look, it's a sign worth, worth using. It might be lying transverse like an egg rather than up and down like an oval. Okay. You can gently, if the child will let you, try and close the book. So if the child was lying on the bed there and you grab the testicles gently... And you try to close the book, and it's much more painful. But if you open the book, it relieves the pain a little bit. That, that probably means it's something to do with a torsion rather than an epididymitis. And the cremasteric uh, one of my colleagues, Leah Harrington, did a, in her fellowship did a, a study on this. And she showed that if you have a cremasteric, it's very unlikely that you've got a torsion. It's not foolproof. But if you've got a clear cremasteric reflex, it's probably not a torsion. And there's no fever. Now, that's, that's a whole lot of things. If you get a kid that has not one of those things and it came on slowly and hasn't been vomiting, the negative of what I've put on that slide, you can be pretty clear that they've got an epididymitis, I reckon. But if it's, you know, four of these are there and five of them aren't, do, a, do an ultrasound. You're in doubt, you're not sure, do an ultrasound and a Doppler. But some of them, it's classic. And also, you know, if the kid's had it for three days, and it came on gradually. If it was a torsion, it's gone. You know, two to four hours, preferably six hours, it's probably lost. The only thing is that sometimes it can be intermittent. So you've got to be a little bit careful of that intermittent torsion. So according to Dr. Skolnick, if
0: you're an experienced ER doc and can get a good history and physical exam, you don't necessarily need to ultrasound every kid with a painful scrotum. Specifically, Dr. Skolnick claims that if you have the absence of all the classic findings of testicular torsion, that is abrupt onset of severe pain of the entire testicle at once, often that comes on with exercise or intercourse and has vomiting associated with it, no fever, a lie of the involved testicle that is higher up and transverse rather than vertical, increased pain on closing the book and decreased pain on opening the book and an absence of the cremasteric reflex on the affected side that's the one where you scrape the inner thigh and the testicle jumps upward then you don't necessarily need to do an ultrasound. So if you don't have any of these findings you're probably safe not doing an ultrasound to rule out torsion. Unfortunately we'll probably never see an RCT that helps confirm Dr. Skolnick's approach. That being said, torsion is still one of the most commonly misdiagnoses that end up in court so please be careful. If you have any doubt whatsoever, then get an ultrasound stat. And for patients who present with a classic story, you don't even need an ultrasound. Call your urologist and get the patient ready for the OR. Also remember that some patients will present just with abdominal pain or flank pain. In fact, I just had a patient the other month who, even after repeated questioning, swore up and down that he had abdominal pain and no testicular pain. And lo and behold, he had a
3: testicular torsion. If the appendix testis torts, it's the top lateral outer side of the testicle, it literally can make a little blue dot sign that the the skin of the scrotum, you can ride it over there and you'll see a little blue dot under the skin if the child has pale skin. And again, the onset is like a torsion, but the whole testicle is not tender. It's just the upper pole. It's not even just the whole epididymis. It's a little blue dot area. And the kid, in this case, you can grasp the testicle, and you can actually say, and he'll say, that is the painful spot, and it's not painful anywhere else. And you can make the diagnosis, and you don't have to take it any further. Ultrasound will also show it. So that's the scrotum itself, okay? Now moving on to the penis. So balanitis is an inflammation of the glands penis only. Balanopostitis is inflammation of the Glands and the foreskin in the uncircumcised child. Everyone knows. I hope that you should never forcefully retract a foreskin in a baby. It will eventually open up and come down during puberty, and it doesn't have to be cleaned underneath the foreskin. Just leave it be, and you need to instruct, especially new parents, on that. Treatment is very non-interventional. There's no reason, even if the the, the end of the penis looks red and somewhat swollen and there's some pus coming out of the opening of the foreskin. No antibiotics usually are needed. You can use sitz baths, which is getting the kid to sit in a nice warm bath of water a couple of times a day, gently milking the foreskin, getting the muck out of it, but not retracting it. Pain relief, NSAIDs. You can consider a cephalexin aimed at a cellulitis if it looks cellulitic, but not for the actual condition itself and maybe some hydrocortisone ointment touched into the end of the foreskin. But really, sitz baths and pain relief is all you need. So, paraphimosis. So this is when the foreskin, by design or by mistake, has been forcibly retracted and it's strangulating the end of the penis. Grab the whole penis, you can even get the child to do it or the parent, you just grab the whole penis and try and apply pressure from the top down which you can do holding your hand. I mean, one has that degree of control. More pressure on the, top, on the index and middle, and you literally try and squeeze the edema out five, eight, ten minutes. And if you've ever had pitting edema or if you've seen someone with pitting edema of, of their ankle, if you grab the ankle and just squeezed, it does reduce it. So just firm pressure. That can often reduce the swelling enough that... Accompanied by pain relief, sedation if needed, could be intranasal, midazolam, intranasal, fentanyl. You can then go about and actually do the reduction. So you're trying to pull the foreskin out towards you while you're pushing the glands down. And the glands is highly compressible. So sedation, pain relief, compression, and then turn it inside out. That technique has not failed me yet in PEDS. Other things that can help is getting the kid in a Trendelenburg while you're waiting for your pain relief or sedation to work. Because gr- let gravity do its bit. So pressure, gravity, pain relief, sedation, and eventually you can get by and do this. The other thing that can go wrong, especially in a male, in that in the area of the perineum, is obviously hernii. If a female has a swelling in the inguinal region, think of ovary until proven otherwise. And I've probably dealt with at least four or five kids. It's rare for a female to present with an acute inguinal swelling, much more common for a male, unless there's a reason to have a lymph node there. Usually, you can find a lesion on the leg. But if they just present with an acute inguinal swelling, think ovary until proven otherwise. If necessary, get an ultrasound, because you have to get the ovary out of there quickly. It'll strangulate. The kid will lose that ovary. So that's in females. So in males, 1% to 2% of males will have an inguinal hernia in their lifetime. In premies, it's 10 times that, to the extent that if we have a premie in our unit, on the neonatal ward and the special care unit, if a premie has an inguinal hernia, it gets repaired before they go home, because the chance of them strangulating is also much higher than the normal child, and many of them uh, will be bilateral. So... Premies with inguinal masses are probably should go into the next surgical list, and I've often had to politely tell the fellow who might be rotating from adult surgery, excuse me, but I think your boss is going to want this kid admitted, and do him the next available slot on the list, because they're going to say, go home, we can come back to the clinic in three or four months, and we'll do him then. So premies, no. It occurs more on the right, and more in males. Classically, you can't get above a hernia, and you can't palpate the cord, So how to reduce a hernia. So if it's not purple, red, with a child who's vomiting with a high fever, which we might think not only that it's incarcerated, but that it's strangulated. If we think that we just have an incarcerated hernia, how should we uh, reduce that? So many of the same principles that I mentioned before. Calm the child, give some good pain relief, sedation if needed, get him in a Trendelenburg, let gravity do its bit while you're waiting, and often While you're doing that, it'll go on its own before you even get to the child, but eventually you're going to try and reduce it with slow and firm pressure. So when you are gently trying to reduce this bowel that is herniated down into the scrotum or certainly down the path of the cord, you're not just applying pressure and squeezing this bag. You've got to guide the pressure around the internal ring and back into the abdomen, and you've got to guide it around the corner, whichever side it is, through the internal ring. And that's the commonest thing that I've seen not being done correctly. Okay, moving on to then the perineal problems that can occur in females. With regard to vaginal and perineal lacerations, I think the biggest thing is people freak out about this. They're worried that the child has lost her hymen, she's lost her virginity, that she won't be able to have babies. And really, your job can really be to, after a good exam, to calm everyone down because you have to do very little for these. Once in my career so far, an adolescent girl who got a handlebar injury, has has the child ever had to have anything done by the obstetrician gynecologist? And what had happened to her, she she nicked some kind of vessel quite high up and she actually bled into the pelvis and had to be transfused and had to go in and tie something off. But barring that, you, you know from the size of episiotomies that do and don't have to be repaired that... A lot of bleeding and, uh, and, and quite a long laceration can be tolerated without having to actually go in and repair every last piece of it. So to examine uh, little baby girls, a, a knee-elbow position. So get them lying on the bed, crunched up with their elbows on the bed and their bum in the air, and you can often very, very easily see the perineum, and it's much less threatening than them having to lie on their back with their knees pulled apart. Again, just keep them clean, frequent bathing, perhaps some polysporin to avoid the urine stinging when the kid pees, and pain relief if needed. And only if there's ongoing active bleeding and oozing, or there's a huge hematoma, or the kid's pale signs of shock, which as I say, I've only seen once, I think you can probably leave most of these, even a centimeter, a centimeter and a half, because the edges are going to be approximated because of where the cut usually is, and you, you often don't have to go in.
0: So just a quick review here of Dr. Skolnick's pediatric urology talk. I already reviewed the testicular torsion part. First, UTI. For kids under two years of age with prolonged fever of more than a couple of days, even if they have something like an upper respiratory tract infection, you need to think about UTI and get a bag urine. If the bag urine is positive, then go on to a clean catch urine or a catheterized urine or a suprapubic aspiration. Remember that neonates can have a clean looking urine but still have a UTI, so neonates need a full septic workup regardless. Remember that Keflex is your first-line antibiotic in Canada for UTI in kids because the resistance to Amox and ceptra are unacceptably high. While the standard presently is to work up kids with a UTI with an ultrasound and a VCUG, there is a trend away from radiating these kids with VCUG because there's no established proven link between childhood UTIs and adult problems like renal failure and hypertension later on. Kids who present with vomiting and no diarrhea can be a challenge. Remember to undress the child fully and think about CNS causes that raise intracranial pressure, as well as GI causes like appendicitis, intussusception, and volvulus. And of course, testicular torsion, which can even happen in neonates. A nice pearl is that if you see a groin mass in the female child, it's an incarcerated or strangulated ovary until proven otherwise. We talked in emergency medicine cases about pediatric head injury in one of our early episodes. And of course, what we all concentrate on mostly is ruling out the bleed. The next little bit is a segment from one of Dr. Anna Jarvis's talks where she concentrates not on the bleed, but more on the post-concussive syndrome, which we probably don't do a good enough job to help prevent.
6: Now, head injuries. Ten-year-old comes in. The star player who comes in, hits the boards while playing, was stunned. Just not right. Needed help coming off the ice. Now, that's big. And, you know, the first thing they say to you is, we just want you to rule out a head injury because the playoffs are next week. And you look at this kid, and he says he's okay. He wants to go back and play. But he's pale. His pulse is 100 Right? Blood pressure is okay. GCS is 15. Don't worry about it. No, for this child, let's take a poll. How would you manage this kid? How many would send him for a CT? How many of you would uh, observe him in eMERGE? How many you you send him back home? Send him home to be observed. And when is he going back to play? I want to distinguish. We are very worried about missing significant intracranial bleeds following a head injury. We should be concerned with the subtler signs, the problems with learning, the changes in personality, right, and the concussion syndrome rather than missing a bleed. The bleeds aren't that common in minor head injuries. The rate has been fairly steady at 0.5% for years in a kid who has a GCS of 15. So we went through a stage up to the 90s where almost every one of these kids got a CT and then we sent them home, right? We were not as sensitive as we need to be about other injuries other than the bleeding. And now there are some excellent guidelines out But I wanna say to you there are no excellent guidelines out in the UK, Australasia, America, Canada and various other countries in between the European Neurological Association has adopted an amalgam. And there are many things done in different countries. And if you have a parent who comes from a different place and their child happens to be in that 0.5% who gets in trouble, make sure you've communicated clearly what you're doing, why you're doing it, what your standard of care is, and what the follow-up should be. Let me point out that Birmingham Children's Hospital did an excellent study where they did very, very few CTs. They were very, uh, very large centre. anyone with a GCS less than 13 on hospital assessment, got a CT. If your GCS was 13 or 14 at two hours after adequate resuscitation, now you would consider in North America that this was rash behavior, right? Reckless behavior. So they may be very careful where you practice that you follow the guidelines in place where you are. But this is what they had. And if there was vomiting because the consultants are not in the emergency department at night, that patient needed to be discussed with the most senior emergency consultant available. When they followed these guidelines, which would be considered reckless in many places in North America, they found that 57 out of 1,428 had a CT, of which 35% were abnormal. They followed these kids for a whole year, and no one developed anything that was missed following this, all right? No, why is it in my hospital we are still doing CTs on 65% of these kids? I'm not saying you can go and follow the Birmingham children's rules. They published because they were incensed that having the British or European guidelines imposed and then they now had to do more CTs than they were doing in 2005. So even though we have CT guidelines, they are more generous than we need to be. And I'm asking you to think about it because there's very real evidence that there's a risk of cancer and maybe other damage to the developing brain.
0: Here, Dr. Jarvis is going to go on to talk about post concussive syndrome and the importance of post concussive syndrome. She's going to refer to an article out of Pediatrics in August 2010 called Epidemiology of Post Concussion Syndrome in Pediatric Mild Traumatic Brain Injury out of Calgary.
6: So, concussions. This is the big thing. And I point out to you Barlow's study just because it was well done, done in Canada tertiary care children's hospital, and they had children who came in with kind of minor uh, head trauma, and they compared them to children, uh, they call it um, traumatic brain injury, right? Minor traumatic brain injury um, versus extracranial injuries. And they just did a whole stack of tests on them. And the interesting thing was that those who came in with these minor traumatic brain injuries, 13.7% of them were still showing significant changes in personality, functioning, learning ability, months later. And this is why when they come in with a head injury, it's not that you're worried about missing a bleed, Please look up and learn and follow the concussion brain injury guidelines. The child should be perfectly well. If they are dinged, they're dizzy, they're not right, they need to stay in a dark room like they have a migraine. No TV, no video games, no school, no studying. And that includes university students because you're setting them up to do badly, to fail and get into other problems.
0: Lastly, but certainly not least, we've got an amazing talk by Anil Chopra on shock. There's been so much written about and talked about when it comes to shock and emergency medicine, but this is beautiful how Dr. Chopra reviews all the key important practice changing points.
5: We're gonna talk about uh, myths in the shocky patient particularly myths in the management of the shocky patient. So our objectives are we're going to discuss an evidence-based approach to the management of the patient with shock to describe some of the myths and controversies in the treatment of septic, obstructive, anaphylactic, and toxic shock. What's shock? Lack of perfusion, lack of oxygen to the tissues, cells go out of whack, tissues go out of whack, we see systemic effects the cell membranes become leaky, the pH goes out crazy, and the body's immune response sends a million inflammatory things all over the place. And it's the inflammation is why they get so sick. And that is a well-known and distinguished road to death. And out comes the emergency dog to the rescue. And we're going to talk about some of the best ways of improving outcomes in these patients. Uh, Lots of different causes of shock. We're certainly not going to talk about all of them. Hypovolemic, probably amongst the best known in the bleeding patient or the GI loss patient or the heat stroke patient. The cardiogenic, primarily like MIs, arrhythmias, tamponade, and PE. And then we get the distributive causes. Others that systemic inflammation to things like pancreatitis and burns and weird and wonderful diseases like mixed edema or Addison's. So let's talk about a couple of myths and pearls as I see them. One of the things that's out there is that shock is... If a patient's hypotensive, they're shocky, and if they're not hypotensive, they can't be shocky. And that, of course, is entirely untrue. As an example of the elderly patient who is hypertensive to begin with, they can come in with a near normal blood pressure, let's say 110 over 80, and have critical hyperperfusion to all their organs. And so we can't just rely on the blood pressure. We will rely on the clinical manifestations, cool, clammy, poor cap refill, poor urine output, a little bit confused and so on. And the second point along that same line is sometimes we are a little trigger happy with we made the diagnosis shock, let's start the vasopressors. And clearly vasopressors are bad for you unless your tank is completely full or overfull. It's very well known that if you vasopressors knock off, shrink your arterial diameter by half, they decrease your perfusion to an eighth. So unless you've got tons of volume inside, it's a bad thing to do. Other things is, let's talk about the 70, 80-year-old patient who comes from a nursing home, has a fever and hypotension. We stick in a Foley catheter, we get four and a half white cells, and voila, we made the diagnosis of urosepsis and septic shock, and we stop investigating other potential costs. And so clearly urinary tract infections, if you read some of the meta-analysis in the archives of internal medicine, is an overdiagnosis by many of us. So four and a half white cells does not equal uroseptic shock and a corollary, given that uh, I also do a lot of medical legal work, is that we can't have these people as strictly the diagnosis of Cipro deficiency syndrome. Cipro doesn't work really very well with the PE or the MI that we have on on ceftriaxone for two days, and then the patient doesn't get better. My personal pet peeve, um, and I think this happens fairly commonly too, is the person who has a known grade 3, grade 4 LV, or let's say the patient who has a chronic renal failure, or maybe even a dialysis patient who has dialysis yesterday, a history of fluid overload in the past. And giving these people, because we're worried about tipping them into ARDS or pulmonary edema iatrogenically, we give them these teeny-weeny boluses of 250. These are shocky patients, 250 boluses in a patient that has an intravascular volume of 5, 6, 7, 8. It's clearly going to do nothing. And if you give three of these boluses, it's still clearly going to do nothing in the shocky patient. And so... If ordinarily you were going to give six liters, if you believe in the Manny River study, in the first six hours, for a 50-year-old guy who had a great otherwise, but now you found out he has a great 3LV and was in failure two years ago, and you don't want to give six liters, give them 5.9 liters. It's great. Just take off 100 cc's and the patient will do really, really well. The bottom line is these people will die of under-resuscitation. They will generally not die because we gave them... Extra fluids. And sure, if we're going to be a little bit concerned, means we give the first couple of liters and the next four liters we can give a little bit more slowly. Our critical care experts, our intensivist colleagues, and I know we have a few in the group because I've talked to you, um, suggest that ED physicians don't intubate people enough, these shocky patients, don't paralyze them enough, don't ventilate them enough. Haven't seen a randomized control trial to show that, but clearly there is that major perception out there that they come down and the patient gets intubated or they go up and they get intubated because they say the respiratory muscles use up a lot, a lot of energy. And one of the problems with septic shock and other kinds of shock is the problem with oxygen demand and supply inequality. So if you can knock off that requirement, it should be good for the patient. So the corollary is if you know there's an ICU bed available, you should highly consider this underutilized management strategy. The other issue I don't think anybody's ever going to solve, and that is the issue of bicarb. And that's been in there when I was a resident. I've been in practice now 20 years. and I was a resident, I remember when I did my ICU rotations, people were still talking. Nobody's come to any answers. But as a very smart colleague of mine said, bicarb only satisfies the physician's urge to act. There's no evidence it does anything. In fact, there's some animal data to suggest it does the reverse of what we want. It's a great way to alkalinize the urine but it may paradoxically drop the pH in your your cells where you really want it to improve. And there is actually a nice little randomized control trial just published in 2010 where they give consecutive shocky patients bicarbonate infusions for one to three days. No benefit in mortality, no benefit in hemodynamic outcome. So clearly we know that it doesn't save lives from a lot of stuff. And there's some animal data to say that it may actually harm the patient. It makes the oxygen stick tighter to the hemoglobin so it doesn't offload the oxygen enough at the tissues. It drops your ionized calcium, so your ventricles may not contract as well. Does that mean we're never going to use bicarb? No, of course not. I've used it. I suspect you've used it. Um, But I think we really need to reserve it. We use it rarely. The guidelines, which are old now, 2008 guidelines are three years old on top of that. So we're talking about five-year-old guidelines that say consider its use when pH is less than 7 that doesn't really tell me anything. The way to improve acid-base status is resuscitate the hell out of them, oxygenate them, ventilate them, and reverse the cost. Really, bicarb is not expected to reverse the endogenous acid-base status. So central lines, yes, they can aid in your volume resuscitation serial bloods. You have to put them in the first one hour of the shock patient. No. CAPE guidelines, grade D recommendation says, yeah. You can put them in. Eventually, you have to put them in if you keep these patients on vasopressors and other agents. Eventually, when resources allow. These a bunch of experts say, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) We better say something because they expect us to put a guideline. So you hear things like, consider, you may do this. You can do this. I already knew what I may and I can do. So these are really not very helpful. Similarly, actually, um, there's a huge study 15,000 patients, over 15,000 patients, four continents, just recently published critical care that said, hey, listen, we know what everybody should be doing, but what are people actually doing with shocky patients? And only 10 to 30% are getting central lines. Only 10 to 30% are getting things like mixed oxygen saturations. And the bottom conclusion of the line was that all of these interventions don't make any independent impact on mortality or hemodynamic status. So this pressure for us to put these fancy lines in in the first one or two hours is factitious. Eventually, depending on what you do, longitudinal care, this may be something the intensivists would want to do. If there's a delay in movement of these patients to a critical care unit and you have the resources to put them in, fantastic. But they in themselves don't save lives. The six liters of fluid, the six units of packed red cells, the vasopressors and the inotropes is what seems to be the ones that actually make the difference same with our tear lines I can assure you my busy department I don't have the re- my resources don't allow if you want an art line you can put it in yourself the use of Alshan I just want to say that Alshan is extremely helpful in these difficult shocky patients where you don't know where the bang for the buck is where should you direct your management strategy if you can show IVC collapse a collapse of the IVC diameter by fifty percent or more in expiration and inspiration to give you an idea of the patient's volume status, you really need to give them a lot of fluid. In the difficult case where you don't know what the diagnosis of the shock is coming from, dilated RA RV to look for outflow obstruction, looking for LV function is the heart hyperdynamic or not so dynamic, giving an idea cardiogenic versus alternative causes. So a lot of uh, stuff out there in terms uh, generally tells us that we are not as quick as recognizing shock as we should be. We're not as aggressive as we should be, but I think we're all getting better. The mortality hasn't changed a heck of a lot, but I think we haven't reviewed this as much since the guidelines came out. Hopefully, it will make some impact. So let's talk about a couple of cases. Case 1, 64-year-old lady brought by EMS after collapse at home. Fever, cough, poor oral intake, weakness for five days, tachy, tachypneic, febrile, SATs are low. Given a couple of liters of fluid, still hypotensive. ECG shows sinus tachycardia. We think it is septic shock. The difference in the nomenclature, you hear about severe sepsis and septic shock, the only difference really is is refractory hypotension. Severe sepsis is still that all your organs are messed up. And some of the guidelines, including Manny Rivers study, what do they tell us to do with this patient? Well, they say use early aggressive goal resuscitation within the first six hours. And the six hours is no golden rule, it just emphasizes the importance of doing it in the first couple of hours. Blood cultures before antibiotics, it is, uh, in a minority of patients, the culture actually ever come back positive, and it usually is either pneumococcus, staph, or E. coli. Prompt imaging to confirm the source of infection, and big guns, broad spectrum therapy. And finally, the aggressive use of blood products in patients whose hemoglobin is either dropping expeditiously or is already at a severe level to begin with. So what was the difference? So Manny Rivers, lots of patients. What was the difference between the group he treated in his own way, EDGT, and the group he treated in whatever way you want, whatever you've always done it? The big difference was the early Goldrack said got a lot more fluids, they got a lot more blood products, and they got a lot more inotropes. Everything else was about the same. It didn't make any difference. Even though the inclusion criteria for all these patients was they all had ARC lines, they all had CVP lines, we now have the data to show that those didn't actually make a difference, per se. It was the aggressiveness of the resuscitation. Some people wonder what, what would be the best fluid. And it makes no difference which crystalloids you use, saline or ringers. There's slight differences in bicarb and sodium, but it makes no difference. What is known is that colloids are not necessary. Albumin, there's a small risk of transmissibility of infection. It costs more money. Why use it? Pentastarch, though, those artificial colloids actually kill people. So not to use pentastarch, particularly in anybody who's developing coagulopathy. Now, the pentastarch is like your colloid without the risk of transmissibility. It stays in your intravascular space, doesn't leak out, makes your legs swollen and your arms swollen and so on. But in shocky patients, it kills people, so don't use it. And finally, the judicious use of blood. And it makes so much sense that we should be a little bit more trigger happy with blood because that, if tissues are not getting enough oxygen, the best way to get it to them is maximize your oxygen and throw more red cells in. Which antibiotics? So, we're going to spend a couple of minutes on the antibiotics. Unlike things like pneumonia, Unlike things like urinary infections, unlike things like uh, skin infections, where really we don't have great data to say if we gave the antibiotic at two hours or six hours that it actually makes any difference. There's no data to show that. Shocky patients, there actually seems to be enough cumulative data to say that if you delay it or use the wrong bug juice to begin with, more people will die. I think this is kind of important for us to know. It, it's absolutely acceptable to overtreat these patients from an antibiotic point of view. We're not talking about viral bronchitis here. So a quarter of the bugs come from the lungs. A quarter of the bugs come from the urine. Fifteen percent come from your skin. And fifteen percent come from your gut. The only thing with the gut is is almost all these people have some comorbidity. They have a big scar that happened recently. They have a history of inflammatory bowel disease and so on. So typically we're dealing with resp, um, urine, and skin. And yes, we overcall urinary tract infections. We have to be a little bit careful about that. The bugs for respiratory is pneumococcus, pneumococcus, pneumococcus. If we cover pneumococcus, we're generally right most of the time. Unfortunately, the shocky patients, we really want to be right even higher. So we do need to cover for some of the staph gram negatives, and particularly pseudomonas. Urine, E. coli, E. coli, E. coli. The other gram negatives, fortunately, all respond to the same drugs as E. coli. E. coli is the trouble bug to begin with. So if you've got a drug that works on E. coli, it will work on the other gram negatives. GI, again, E. coli. But you also got the nasty enterococcus. And you've got the nasty bacteroides fragilis. It does make a difference in what drug you choose. And finally, skin. It's skin is a no-brainer. Strep or staff, occasionally epidermidis. You've already heard a little bit about MRSA. And I don't know if you guys know, the the stuff we just gathered from last year shows that praline skin infections, 35 to 40% of staff in Canada, in small communities and big communities, is MRSA. To me, that means I don't care what the risk factors are. I'm going to treat every praline skin infection, if I'm going to treat, with an MRSA drug. I think in this day and age, it's a no-brainer. Okay, so what, what are we going to use? We're going to use a big gun. We're going to use one big gun, one medium gun. The big gun should always cover pneumococcus, because it's the number one bug. But unless you're pretty sure that pseudomonas is not an issue, and I don't know how you're going to know that. Like pseudomonas is much more common if you were in hospital recently, you're on chronic steroids, you've got bronchiectasis. But generally, we feel there's not enough factors to exclude it clinically we need to cover. So a gram of a carbapenem like imapenem, 4.5-pictazo, or a fourth-generation cephalosporin like cefapine. Use one of these drugs. Um, there's some slight differences that are really not clinically relevant to us, like, you know, coverage for listeria and so on. And then you add a secondary drug. Secondary drug must also cover pneumococcus, because that's our number one drug. So that would be Levoflox, 750. For some reason, you don't have it. And by the way, not Moxie, because Moxie doesn't work on gram negatives. So Levoflox in 750, but let's say you don't have it. You can get away with aminoglycoside, a combination with azithromycin. Some of you may wonder why azithromycin? We're not worried about atypicals. They never cause shock but to give you the extra coverage for pneumococcus that aminoglycosides don't give you. Vancomycin is always thrown in every single guideline. By the way, 2010 guidelines are out. Twelve are coming out anytime soon. They're the same, essentially. The guys who do the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines are the same guys, Lana Mandel and colleagues that do our guidelines, so they're the same guidelines. Vancomycin, when to add them in? I don't know. Obviously, if they've got a central line or a pacemaker sticking in them, probably a good idea you should do it when you suspect MRSA I don't know what that means in this day and age I'm always suspecting MRSA so when staph is on my differential and the patient is sick it means I need to cover for MRSA urinary traditional bugs again combination these are shocky patients their perfusion is poor we generally don't think a single drug will work so combination such as urinary ceftriaxone plus amino or fluoroquinolone. you could switch levo for cipro if you want GI a big gun that has some anaerobic coverage, like imipenem or Piptazo. A pearl that I'd like to pass along to you is that flagyl is a wonderful blood, and Clinda really sucks. I don't know if you know, uh, somebody mentioned a couple of days ago that Clinda can be used as a single agent for MRSA. That is true. That's entirely true. But the resistance of group A strep currently in Canada, as of our surveillance up to last year, is 40% resistance of group A strep to Clindamycin. And that's one reason. Number two, it's either the number one or the number two drug that's been associated with old people dying of C. colitis. And this we know from our Quebec experience. Fluorquinolones and Clinda. Very significant correlation with the ones that die of C. colitis. I think uh, flagell, metronidal though so if you need to cover anaerobic, uh, is the drug of choice in almost every condition, let alone a few exceptions like toxic shock syndrome, fasciitis, and I know the ENT people love it. And the other thing to use Flagyl is because of the bacteroides resistance to clindamycin. So I certainly have a big pet peeve against using or not using clindamycin. Skin, it's easy. It's usually just vancomycin. Um, joints, it's easy. It's usually just vancomycin unless the patient has some confounding factors for you to add some grand ne- neg- negative coverage like ceftriaxone. If you have no idea where the infection is coming from and you got a shocky patient then I think a very reasonable beginning is to add vanco, kills all your gram positives, kills the MRSA, kills your resistant pneumococcus, and then something else that gives you gram negatives for sure. And uh, some of those agents also give you uh, anaerobic coverage. Obviously, you need, you need to tailor this to your patient. Maybe they're immunocompromised, maybe they're transplant, maybe they're oncology. But this is a wonderful combination. For the patient who's sick like a dog, you think they're septic, but you know where the hell the infection's coming from. So controversies, steroids. Steroids uh, were out there. They make a lot of sense to use in, you know, though controversial, dexamethasone for meningitis. The same theory applies. The whole problem with shock is the body's immune response. So if you throw in a really potent anti-inflammatory like steroids, it should do some good. Steroids in shock states, we also have a relative adrenal insufficiency. So steroids should be good. Steroids upregulate your catecholamine. So maybe the hemodynamic stance would be good. Unfortunately, it's untrue. Big doses kill people, so the two, three doses, the two, three grams of steroids that uh, I think we, some people still use for cord syndromes, even though it doesn't work, um, kill people in shock, so we know that doesn't work. Ten years ago, we thought a 50 milligram dose of hydrocortisone seemed to work. The most recent corticus trial of over 500 patients says it doesn't work. So it really is almost no indication for giving steroids to shocky patients in a merge they cause more infections, they cause more superinfections, and they actually cause a secondary source of sepsis and shock. Exceptions to the rule. If you know the patient has adrenal insufficiency, such as Addison's, or the patient is steroid dependent because we think a stress dose is beneficial. Aside from that, our intensivist critical care colleagues are going to take these people to the ICU. They're going to do an ACTH stimulation test to see if the patient needs steroids. So generally no need for anything in eMERGE. Next thing, vasopressors. A lot of press in the adult literature, lots and lots of press. Recent CAPE, uh, lots of critical care stuff coming out about which is better, dopamine or norepinephrine. A recent study of over 1,600 patients with shock randomized to dopamine or norepinephrine showed no difference in outcome, zero. No difference in hemodynamic. Outcome at 28 days. The issue has always been that in this trial of 1,600 patients, we know that one in four patients who gets a dopamine infusion for periods of time will develop a tachyarrhythmia, 80% of the time AF. Norepinephrine, it occurs in one in eight patients, and dopamine occurs in one in four patients. So clearly, dopamine is twice more nuisance causing than norepinephrine. It doesn't kill more patients, it doesn't make them more hemodynamically unstable per se, at 28 days. So I think what we can learn from this is the fact I think you should use the drug you're most comfortable with, the one that's most available to you, the most comfortable for your nursing staff to mix up and start, because in the in this risk of, of, of causing delays, it's probably the drug you are most comfortable using. Sure. If I had a bag of dopamine and a bag of norepinephrine ready to mix in both hands, and everybody knows how to use both of them, I would choose norepinephrine just because it will cause me less headaches in the next couple of hours, will cause my intensive less headaches the next day. Other than that, there really is no uh, debate about it. If we get refractory hypertension, the risk of dying with refractory hypertension is probably at least 86% in these people. But uh, the literature says you can throw in epinephrine. Um, a lot of the anesthetists are, are comfortable using phenylephrine because it's a really, really pure alpha. The problem with dopamine, of course, also is it gives you a reflex tachycardia, which is probably not good for the patient per se, but again, no outcome difference. So some other secondary agents in the really, really tough to bring up the SVR in these patient profiles. The last thing, inotrope. So a vasopressor is all alpha. It squeezes all the arteries, shunts blood centrally, raises your blood pressure. But sometimes the blood pressure looks is great, but the patient looks like crap. No perfusion to the legs, not making urine, still a bit confused, cool, clammy. So then we add it in a beta drug, an inotrope, that causes the heart to contract, increases the heart rate, gets more perfusion to the organs, and it works beautifully and synergistically with vasopressors. And I'll remind you again that the best study to date so far, which everybody talks about, the river study, showed that one of the biggest impacts it did was the high 14 times higher use of dobutamine or milrinone, whichever really you like better, in these patients. So in, in a sub-select patient who you've done everything but they're still poorly perfused, an is a very good agent to use. The dosages so typically for dopamine and dobutamine, 5 to 20 mics per kilo per minute. For norepinephrine, it's a little bit trickier. It's 0.01 to 0.19 mics per kilo per minute. Now, there's no controversy here. We're all using lactate, I suspect. Most of us have uh, easy access. It's a wonderful marker, a surrogate marker of perfusion. It, I think trumps uh, mixed venous oxygen saturation. Lactate clearance actually is very well prognostically correlated with the patient getting better. Uh, as the lactate goes down, the survival goes up, and the patient gets better. Case three, 32-year-old lady eating Chinese food at a restaurant suddenly gets red, itchy, stomach cramps, swelling of the face. She's known to have bad reactions to nuts. She left her EpiPen kit at home, driven by a friend to the ED. She's tachycardic. She's tachypneic. She's hypotensive. Her SATs are okay. Now, if that doesn't get your sphincter really, really in high tone, I don't know what will. So airway, airway, airway is a big, big concern with this lady. She gets oxygen, fluids, she gets a whacking, excellent, excellent, excellent dose of IM-epi, because we know sub-Q doesn't work. IV Benadryl, airway is okay for now. We decided just to bring everything close to the patient, just in case patient crossed. Breathing shows some bronchospasm, and the blood pressure remains low. What are we going to do now? Okay, so what I really want to get across is IV-epi in rare, rare cases. Very bright colleagues of mine came up with the CAPE asthma guidelines. Right at the bottom, you'd need two pairs of glasses to see. Right at the bottom corner, they say, may consider IV epi. The reason they put that so small so nobody could read it is because, historically, mistakes have been made with giving IV epi in patients who are actually alive. In, in near-dead patients, when we give the one milligram, one milligram, one milligram, it doesn't usually make a difference because very little gets to where it is, and most of it gets degraded by the time their perfusion comes back. It doesn't cause them things like subendocardial infarcts. Giving an awake patient a milligram of epi is like taking ten hits of cocaine all at once, like the biggest high you would ever get. I know some of you can relate to that. So it's like the biggest high that uh, you will ever get. But more importantly, it can also cause some subendocardial infarction. And so the reason, not too many, you don't hear too many people talk about IV epi, is because we're so used to giving it in other ways. It's in the rush of the moment, like this really sick patient, is a much higher chance we're going to make a little boo boo. So one thing, always use the one in 10,000, which is one milligrams. Use tiny, tiny doses to begin with. I've done this with asthmatics. I've done this with anaphylactic shock patients. If it works, it works really well. 25 mics to 50 mics at a time. Problem is, in a 10cc syringe of one milligram epi, it's kind of hard. I've done it, but you really got to pay attention to the syringe. that You're only going line by line. Uh, uh, Maybe a better way is take a 50cc bag of saline. Take 10 cc's out, throw it away. Put the 10 cc epi into the bag, shake it all up, and now you've got 50 mics per 5 cc's. It'll much easier to give 5 cc boluses of that than it would be that little syringe. Though I haven't done it, but I, I know some other people do that. And then you give the boluses, and hopefully the patient improves after one, two boluses, while somebody's mixing up the epinephrine drip. at 2 to 10 mics per, per minute. But this is a great stopgag for those rare people that are just so shocky. They're not perfusing anything on their peripheries or their butt or their legs enough to give you enough of an epinephrine high to basically, epinephrine is is basically the king and queen of anaphylaxis, right? you got alpha, you got beta 1, beta 2, bronchodilates, best bronchodilator there is, IV, it brings your blood pressure up, it improves your contractility. There's no better drug than epinephrine in anaphylaxis. Uh, antihistamines, though, uh, do absolutely nothing except skin. They do nothing for your airway, do nothing for your breathing bronchodilation. they do nothing for your circulation. So, just keeping in mind, one I think everybody stresses if you've made the diagnosis of anaphylaxis, that means they're epideficient, and that's the end of the story. The hives and stuff will eventually respond wonderfully on their own or with Benadryl as well. Um, H2 blockers on themselves, like cimetidine, ranitidine, famotidine, and dean, work really well on their own for allergic reactions. But actually there's no evidence that on maximal dose of H1 receptor blocker like Benadryl that they do anything additive to H1. So they're clearly optional. Agreed, they don't do any harm, but they're clearly not mandated to be given to these patients. Steroids, no proven benefit. Uh, There's no initial benefit in anaphylaxis, but I suspect we all give it. Typically all give it to these sick patients, one dose and emerge maybe a couple of days afterwards. Um, and there's the so-called late phase reaction, where maybe one in five of these patients will get another recurrent reaction, usually eight to ten hours after the initial reaction. So I suspect it may have become some kind of a standard of care, without any evidence basis for it. But everyone I talk to seems to give it, including the allergists who give us lectures and say there's no evidence for it. Observation period. Another thing to keep in mind. So the older literature said must admit to hospital. guidelines say 8 to 12 hours is good. ED culture is watched for a couple hours. But the the state-of-the-art in overcrowded emergency departments, we're getting these people out sooner than we ever, ever used to. And there's overcrowding and bed availability and so on. I put that facetiously, I assure you. But uh, make sure you clearly document that the patient insisted on leaving. Your emergency department, uh, it's, it's the truth. They usually grab the kids, have the bags in hand, and uh, I use, uh, I try to dissuade them at least to stay for an hour or two after their last epinephrine dose. But the big problem is they feel so great after you've given them everything in the kitchen sink that they're often ready to go. Last case 18 year old female, four day history of fatigue and back pain, develops a faint rash, fever two days previously, placed on azithromycin at a walk in clinic. She's got a pulse of 130 a blood pressure of 95 or 60, and a temperature of 36. Pulse of 130 is not normal for this lady. You could buy the blood pressure. Young, healthy females can have low blood pressure. So she's put in the ambulatory area of the eMERGE. Not the best idea in retrospect. She progressively worsens. And following a couple of hours, she becomes extremely sick. You ask her, and she tells you she's menstruating. So you find out the history of the tampon use. She develops dyspnea and confusion. and Of course, she's rushed to the resuscitation now. So the diagnosis is toxic shock syndrome. So the thing about toxic shock, there's a couple of controversies that I just want to go over very briefly. So primarily group A, but in in, in if it's staff, it's usually the tampon population, 50%. The other 50% is the post-op population. We don't know how much antibiotics and other therapies help, but Clearly, we feel that this should be of some benefit. And these bugs produce these amazing, amazing exotoxins that cause your entire body to release cytokines that makes you sick as a dog. These are not subtleties in management. But which antibiotic? Because we typically all will be using antibiotics because we think it's an infectious disease process. And whether immune globulin is of any benefit. Well, here's one of the few things that clindamycin seems to play at least some kind of role based on at least three decent-sized case series, it seems that people treated with clindamycin do better than people not treated with clindamycin. The thought process behind this is that clindamycin decreases production of these t- terrible toxins that kill the patient. So clindamycin is bacteriostatic, decreases protein synthesis, decreases production of toxins, which is a good thing. Then you add in a drug that kills the bacterial cell wall and chops the bacteria to pieces. So you need a drug, ANCEF I would say we always use vancomycin, because I think MRSA is too high a concern there. But you need a bacteria, you need clindamycin plus one other drug to cover the bugs you're worried about, and ANSEP or vancomycin seems very reasonable. Immune globulin, the theory behind that is, is there are some antibodies that will help neutralize some of the toxins and bacteria that are the root cause of the problem. Again, all based on case series. A recommended dose is actually a lowish kind of dose, 400 milligrams per kilogram over a couple of hours. I am going to guess most of us in this room have not ordered it or used it, but clearly it's out there for something to consider in the early management of these patients with your uh, discussion with your consultant, or if you're well familiar with it, I think it's a very reasonable thing. It's sometimes a little difficult to get it depending on where it's kept in the hospital, But I think these two agents, clindamycin, one of the few times I think I I would certainly recommend using clindamycin over other drugs, and two-choice drugs and consideration for using immune globula. So I was suggesting always keeping in mind for that young lady who presented with tachycardia and then became confused and then has a fine rash. Clearly, meningococcemia needs to be considered. Very good point. Well, that about wraps it up for this
0: month's episode. Next month, we're going to continue with Dr. Anil Chopra and Dr. John Foote on respiratory emergencies. So until next time, take it easy.